Hello guys, and welcome back to the Campbell Academy podcast, or at least the new rejuvenated and reinvented Campbell Academy podcast we call Success Story. This is episode one of season two, and today we're going to have a natter with one of the greatest rugby legends of all time. Jordan Murphy is the most decorated Premiership rugby player of all time, with eight Premiership titles, four National Cups and two European Cups out of four European finals. He played for Ireland and the British Lions and is an extraordinary individual. I hope you like it. It's to this new format that we have, but it's not just an interview of me speaking at him and him speaking back at me, but where we explore some of the contexts and some of the concepts about what he's saying and what he's trying to say. Hope you love it. So I think it's important, if you've not recorded a podcast before or you've not been involved in recording a podcast, you kind of have to understand that um, you run out of guests, really. And then you're sort of looking to say, well, who is who could I interview? And, and you can interview all sorts of people which are kind of of no interest at all. Or you can get people on recommendation. Um, and that's what happened here. And we like to do this lecture thing where where we do a lectures to dentists every two months. It's called peer review and it's really cool. And sometimes it's clinical and the other time it's it's non-clinical. And every second time, every four months, it's non-clinical. And we were recommended Jordan Murphy by someone we know to do to do a podcast. And um, I'd never heard anything about him. He's a rugby player, was a rugby player. I, I'm not from rugby. And, um, and I don't really understand rugby that much. I'll watch when Scotland play a little bit. Um, but I've never had it before then. My former partner was massive into rugby. But this guy turned up and and I did a little bit of research about him um, beforehand and I thought, I wonder what we're going to find here. And um, because, you know, I, I, I kind of knew some rugby players at university and they weren't like my friends and never would they be. And so it was fascinating to, to actually just sit down um, after meeting for like five minutes face-to-face and start talking. And it, we kind of went straight at it. We've only met like minutes ago, Jordan, right? And it's already a huge pleasure to be doing this and a privilege to be able to speak to someone with your background. And so today's guest for the podcast for exploration of these themes that we try to explore is Jordan Murphy. So Jordan, welcome to the Campbell. Well, thank you very much first for having time me. Here. First yeah, time here. Yeah, first time here. Any any problems with your teeth that you want us to know? Um, <laughs> to, be, to be quite honest, that's why I'm here. I'm, I'm like a mole. I'm, I'm you know, hoping, worming my way in. You know what? So you scratch my back, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, so Jordan um, is the first person on the podcast that I've interviewed that I didn't have previous experience of before. So usually it's a personal invitation of someone I know. Well, usually it's just grabbing someone with a shepherd's crook and trying to get them in. Um, but so as we were just sort of chatting about, I, I, I got that. We got introduced by mutual friend Chris. So at this point in the in the interview with Jordan and in the world of amateur podcasting, amateur slash nearly professional podcasting, uh, Nancy, who's the producer, is the professional and I'm the amateur, um, the audio starts to drop in and out. And so we get like the most extraordinary podcast in the world with Jordan Murphy, but my audio is dropping out um, and and it's, it sounds terrible and it's hard to listen to, which to many people I think is probably a massive bonus because then there's less of my speaking. But um, that was one of the things that prompted us to reinvigorate and regenerate the podcast because I want to explore different things that Jordan talked about. And so I would have talked to him there about Growing up in Scotland, not playing rugby, being from a poor background, uh, not being one of the privileged guys that go into rugby, and it just we used it in, in physical education lessons just to 
fight each other. Um, and so setting the scene for Jordan before we go back into actually finding out a lot more about him. So I joined Leicester Tigers. So I, when you talk about sort of how you started and sort of where it went from, I started in a, in a very small Christian Brothers school in Ireland. Um, I was the youngest of six kids, a proper mistake. Um, <laughs> and, you know, went went along seven years to my next brother and kind of my, my mother, you know, she thought she was going through the menopause when she felt the kick. It was that level of, of kind of thing. Sing, single income family, father was in the army. Um, so, so it wasn't necessarily a, a, a well to do background either so rugby was quite a strange thing for us to do only the fact that um, we had affiliations with the school that played rugby we kind of that's how I sort of ended up playing it so I kind of I know you've asked me about Leicester and it's kind of divulging no, back no, into how, how I got to Leicester but it was quite strange because I played rugby and I played Gaelic football so let's reflect for a minute here he's the youngest of six from a single income family in the south of Ireland and at that stage the south of Ireland is not a rich country and so a single income family in the south of Ireland is not a rich family. And he didn't go to a school that played rugby, although they were affiliated with a school that played rugby. And so we're starting to build a picture here of somebody with real disagreeable traits, which we'll explore later on in podcasts this season, where they just don't accept the way the world is. And we'll get more into that a little bit later. Oh, and by the way, he played Gaelic football. And if you don't know Gaelic football, it's fucking mental. And Gaelic football was, was what I was actually sort of half decent at. I was a very, very skinny kid. I know it's difficult to believe but when you're looking at me now, but I, I couldn't put on weight. So, I, you know, literally I was called the runt of the litter. You know, you know you'll never make it, all these kind of things, you know. But, but what I had got was speed and speed because I had four older brothers and an older sister and you know speed at everything you know at, at dinner time if, if you didn't eat what was on your plate or if you were slow to start your food it was gone off of your plate and, and vice versa when you're out when I was trying to keep up with the older kids I had to have some sort of dynamic that that made me sort of able to play in the games of football of soccer of tennis and, and we were very very lucky I suppose in, in those days and in, in the 80s um, times were different you know we were sent off post school or you'd, you'd, you'd be down you'd be playing sport until you know, until it was dark and then you'd hear a shout from the very you know, 120, 120 meters away, you know, come home for your tea and you'd rock in an hour after that. And we're just playing every different sport. So Gaelic football was a sport that I played. Uh, it was a sport that I was actually good at um, and I competed up, uh, up until under 18s at, at, at county level. Uh, and my, my ambition was always to play for my county Kildare in, in Croke Park. Yeah. And, and that was the thing. It was, it was around, I think, about 15 years of age. And, I, and I, I'd played in every rugby team in the school. So I'd gone in, started in the D team and kind of managed to play maybe under 13s in, in an A team. But I wasn't necessarily a player who people thought, oh, he's going to be uh, an international or he's going to succeed at it. Let me help you out here because he talks even faster than I do. And so let's just recap this last little phase for a minute because he describes himself as the runt of the litter where he has to fight for his dinner and where he's disadvantaged within his family life in the best possible way, which makes him want to fight harder and perhaps to build scaffolds around the disadvantages that he has, which become the gifts and talents which are going to catapult him further forwards. Oh, and he also had a dream, didn't he? He wanted to play at Croke Park. I've been to Croke Park, admittedly only to watch Robbie Williams do a concert, but it is the centre of all Gaelic footballdom in Dublin. And so let's go back to Jordan. When I was 15, 16, we had a coach come from New Zealand. Um, to, he coached the local town, which my brother was the captain of the local team. And he looked at me playing rugby and said, wow, 
you know, you can kick, you can catch, you can move, but you've no idea what you're doing. And that was no disrespect to the coaches who coached me for the previous three or four years. It was just, you know, it, it just was where it was. So he sent me to New Zealand, effectively. Oh, he, wow. he arranged a school transfer um, uh, exchange with a school called Auckland Grammar School, which is one of the biggest rugby schools in Auckland. It's where kind of most All Blacks have come out of. And, and now, proudly, my name sits amongst all these All Blacks on, on, on the honours board at, at this school called Auckland Grammar. And so I've gone from quite a small non-rugby playing school in called Newbridge College. Four of us went across, played for, for this school in, in Auckland, went really well, learned how to play the game, came back as a 16-year-old, brought some a couple of Kiwis back with us. And all of a sudden, this this sort of little school, which was outside of the main strength of, of you know, Dub, Dublin, there's eight, nine schools that are just really driving Irish rugby forward at the minute. And Newbridge wasn't one of them, but we sort of started to compete and um, managed to get ourselves to a, a Schools Cup final as uh, under 18 and again, the game had just gone professional. It was never an, an ambition of mine or an aim of mine to to go professional as a rugby player. But it was a, a it was a case of we we did really well, and it was you know people were blown away that this little country school could compete against this you know sort of superstars with seven or eight of the Irish under 18s in it and some world class players. Brian O'Driscoll, who's probably one of the greatest rugby players, yeah, in the world, yeah. was on the bench in, ah. this, in this final. So it was it was that level of competition playing against us, and and. Um, so I finished in school and I sort of didn't get it representative honours in, in Leinster or Ireland and people were kind of saying well, none, of, none of the team so one team has eight representatives in the Irish team and sort of I think 12 or 13 in the Leinster team and the other team playing against them has no representatives in any of the teams so without a shadow of a doubt it was a little bit of case of, of you know if you, do, if you weren't in the right school yeah. you weren't going to be picked and it's probably a constant criticism of rugby and even till now, and you hear Eddie Jones recently talking about, you know, the private schools versus versus public schools. And there certainly was a bit of that in 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 where I was. And um, what that did for me was probably really damage my ego in, in the fact that, you know, I thought, well, I'm not good enough. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here from my point of view. And as I listen to this and go back through this after the event, but the first thing to think about is that as a 15-year-old, he just moved to New Zealand. So that's normal, isn't it? Totally normal. In your GCSE year, um, I'm, I'm just going to go to New Zealand to learn how to be a better rugby player. Nobody does that. That's crazy. But as a result of that, when they came back, the little school they were in, in, in the country, went up against the big boys. It was classic David and Goliath. He's saying that Brian O'Driscoll, who is lauded as being one of the greatest rugby players of all time, forget Irish rugby players, just rugby players, he was on the bench in the cup final when they beat his school. And so... How do you do that? How do you become that guy from nowhere, from, from, from the atypical background, from the place where you're not supposed to make it, from being the skinny guy who plays Gaelic football to all of a sudden just going, yeah, yeah, I'll go to New Zealand, and then working with coaches to get to a point where you beat the best school in Ireland in the final and the greatest rugby player of all time is on the bench. It doesn't matter. And to the extent that my father actually approached a selector um, after my Irish school trial, in which I played very well, and, and he was kind of very rude to my dad. He said, look, he's not good enough. Take him home. He's, he's, not, he's too small. He's too slow. Um, he's never going to make it. So kind of a year out of school, I thought, well, you know, what are you going to do? And, and the same coach who sent me to New Zealand had said, come and play for the, the local team, which is nice. It's a, it's a junior rugby club at the time. And he said, I promise you after a year, I'll get you a much better club. And my ambition was to sort of go to Dublin and play under 20s rugby. And he said, no, no, just try this. Play adults rugby. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Enter stage left, the inspirational hero. There's always one of these, usually many. He's the guy who believes in you. The person who says, go in this direction. 
don't be downbeat, get your head up, it'll be all right, and gives you the motivation and the inspiration to go further, to go longer. This is in Ireland. This is yeah. so I'm back in Ireland now. Um, sort of just left school, 18, yeah. nine, 18 years of age. Did a year of rugby, junior rugby, playing with men. Really, I was, again, I was very small, but his thing was, unbeknownst to me, he was going to change me. I played fly half, number 10, which yeah. is kind of uh, a position which controls the game. And he, he wanted me to play fullback. Yeah. So I moved to fullback and I played a game and I just thought, wow, this is this is me. This is what I what I need to be doing. This is where I need to be playing. It's, it's you know so much more freedom. I was reasonably quick. Um, and I just felt this is amazing. So halfway through the year, we went down to watch Leicester Tigers train. Bob Dwyer was there. We just watched them on the sideline, and he got talking to Bob Dwyer, and somehow wangled me a trial. Spoke to Bob, said, "Listen, this this kid, and these, I've got two kids, eighteen years of age. They're really good. Would you take them on a trial?" And Bob said, "Yeah, come over. Send them over for three weeks next August, um, June or July, August." And we, we went across on a trial. I was thought wow you know what's there to lose I can remember having a conversation with him before I went saying you know this is a bit of a waste of three weeks isn't it and he said just he said you'll learn so much you'll learn so much from being in Leicester so these are the lessons from the first inspirational hero that we heard about in Jordan's story he's the guy who picked him up when he was flat when he was down he's the guy who encouraged him to play rugby at a higher harder level but also to change his position after he'd been a scrum half all that time. He then was the guy who took him down to watch Leicester Tiger train when he came on tour to Ireland. But he was also the guy who asked if Jordan could have a trial. Without that, we're probably talking about a different story. In fact, we're probably not talking about a story at all. You know, training with probably the under-20s, but, you know, it's Leicester, it's a big team. And, and I didn't know a lot about Leicester. You know, it wasn't, that you know, you'd get a little... Clip it, clips of, of rugby on Saturday afternoon on the television for maybe 20 minutes you'd see some results and you'd see some tries but it wasn't something that I necessarily followed I was watching junior rugby in, in the local town sort of on a Saturday and a Sunday so when I went on trial um, I found myself on a pitch it was just after the Lions tour in 1997 yeah. uh, I found myself on a pitch with Martin Johnson Neil mm -hmm. Back Graham Rowntree and I expected to be four pitches across with the under 20s but no it was very much a case of everyone trains together and you sort of see what you're worth so within sort of the space of 20 minutes I'd massively embarrassed myself by asking Craig Joyner who's a friend of mine a Scottish international and I didn't recognize him and I sort of said you know could, can you do this asked him if you could execute a pass um, which obviously would have been just bread and butter to him and he kind of looked at me with a frown and said you know of course I can do that um, you know it's, it's a no-brainer and he turned around he had Joyner on his back and I just thought oh God, can the ground just swallow me up? Like I, said, I, I just, I just want to go home. I'm here embarrassing myself amongst. I'm, I'm training with professional players. I'm a kid who's never been good enough. Who's always been told, no, you won't succeed because you're too small, you're too slow. You know, you don't have the ability. And I'm here with renowned professionals, internationals, Scottish internationals, English internationals, British and Irish lions. Um, so the first week was really interesting. We played a game. Um, I played really well in the game, and Bob Dwyer came up to me at 20 minutes into it and said, "Right, you're coming off." And Dusty Hare, who was coaching the side, was, you know, I can remember speaking to him at halftime going, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. And he said, no, that's, that's really good. If, if, like, if he's taken you off, it means he's happy with what he's seen. And the following week, I played a game in the second team. Again, I was on trial. We, we played, I think, seven internationals in, in the second team. We played at Gloucester away. And the, the third week, the game was cancelled. We were staying at the time with Martin Johnson's parents. We were billeted out with Hillary and Dave Johnson. Hillary, God rest her soul. So again, there's another story when I walked into the house and didn't realise where we were staying. And so you get a sense of what it was like on the trial. 
for a young guy coming to Leicester with all of these superheroes of rugby. But this next bit about the Johnsons, this is really, really important because this is enter stage left. Superstar hero number two. Martin Johnson came to the door looking the size of a door frame and kind of looked at me and I thought, wow. So, we, you know, his parents billeted Wait, us for, for the first few weeks. Um, and Hillary was effectively my first agent. Um, the game was cancelled third week. She sort of said, when are you going home, Jordan? I said, I'm going home on Monday. She said, well, I think you've played quite well. They were quite impressed. You know, to get from the development team to the second team in, in one week is, is very good. Um, get in the car. So she throws me in the back of an old Ford Granada, drives into uh, Oval Park, which is where Leicester train, strolled into the manager's office, um, said, you stay in the car, came out 20 minutes later and said, look, if, if you want to come back, there's a three-year development contract there for you. So you may have missed that because, again, it was a little bit quick. But the second hero in the story isn't Martin Johnson, the World Cup winning monster captain of England and one of the greatest rugby players England have ever had. It was his mum, Hilary Johnson. When Jordan was about to go back to Ireland, unceremoniously just dumped out of Leicester and passing back to who knows what would happen in his life, she put him in her car and drove him to the training ground and went into the manager's office and got him a three-year contract. Who does that? Who does that for anybody else? They are the stories behind the success stories, the people who made it happen for other people. So back to Jordan telling us what was required and what it was like in those early days at Leicester. You know, you'll have to go and do a bit of study, um, which is the, the, criteria, the only criteria that my parents had was that I had to you know, keep studying in order to leave. And she, she effectively negotiated my first contract. So at this point, I have, feel I have to jump forwards from where he got his contract. And just to put a flag in the sand to figure out how good a rugby player he actually was. How many did you win? Two European Cup wins, yeah. two European Cup losses. And so, how many titles? So I'm the most decorated premiership player of all time. I won eight premierships. Yeah. Uh, I won four domestic cups, two European Cups. So at this point in the discussions, I've established some of the backgrounds um, that we need from Jordan about being the youngest of six and where he came from and the chances that he had and the people that influenced him. But some of the things I also wanted to talk about with the concepts of preparation and opportunity, which comes from golf, about being prepared, being good enough, because the opportunity only comes along every so often. And the other one is about circumstances of geography, because you have to be in the right place at the right time. That's why tech guys migrate to Silicon Valley. It's almost impossible to have a super tech startup succeed away from Silicon Valley, because all the infrastructure is there for it. And so we chatted about that. And as we chatted about it, we both realised and both agreed that when you go for things like this, it can never be for the money. Certainly not to start with. It has to be for something more. Just before we get to that though, and while I've got your attention, we've got Ronnie Young coming back on the 13th and 14th of July this year. And so if you're an implant clinician, who's working at a level of advanced and complex, and you want to come to one of the best courses you've ever been on with one of the best educators, but nicest people you've ever met, this is for you. I did it last year when he was here, the whole thing start to finish. And I promise it's the best bit of CPD that I've ever done. And I'm going to do bits of it again this year. But it's not one of those courses where somebody shows you stuff that's out of reach. 
it will absolutely change your day-to-day -day practice forever and the value for that is massive. And so that's beyond money as well. No, no, it was, it was, it was definitely not money. As in, I would have earned more working the hours that I did in McDonald's than I would, you know, being a development player for for Leicester Tigers. So why would you do? I'm just the love of the sport. Like people, people said that all along to me. You know, why would you do it? You'd have been in a better position doing different jobs. You know, you could have gone done X, Y, and Z financially. With but for me, it was a dream scenario. You got paid a very small amount to do something that you would have done for free you know if I, if I had never have signed a professional contract I'd have been going out on a Tuesday and a Thursday night and playing games on a Saturday and I just thought it was the best thing you know ever so to be able to do it and to compete and, and I guess and you probably touched on it a little bit being the youngest of six my dad I can always remember him saying this one's going to be a superstar this one's going to play for Ireland this was from knee high to a grasshopper he would he would back me back me back me and, and actually my next brother up who's seven years older than me he was always very good as well so he would always drive into me you know do you can you can do it you can do it your way you don't have to do it their way so you know if it was a, an activity where i'd have to run around him he would say well why you're not you're never going to physically be better than me but you're quicker than me so do this or do that or chip it over me and and do different things so, so when i started in the game when i started at leicester dean richards sort of gave me the nickname the george best of of <laughs> rugby because because I had a skill set that other players didn't yeah. have. It was all, always done a certain way. And I look back and say, why did I do it differently? Because I was actually encouraged to do it differently. I, I had done the 10,000 hour rule of every skill, everything, you know, I, I spent a huge amount of time on my own honing every skill. So it starts to become clear for Jordan, I think, when we think about what he's saying and the experiences that he had, that he was able to take his main disadvantage, which was the fact that he was too small, and to turn it into an advantage. Because the advantage is that he developed strategies to deal with his smallness. So speed and skill and the ability to chip it over his brother and run past him. And in the end, it was stepping outside the box and that sort of creativity and that scaffold that he built around himself, which made him who he was. Not dissimilar to the dyslexic guys who make extraordinary businessmen or trial lawyers or succeed in so many other aspects of life. Yeah, I think so. I, I describe it as, as I like the disagreeability. I describe it as having a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And I've always been, and I'm still a nightmare of saying, when you tell me I can't do something, yeah, that, I want, that's it. I, I want, it's, it's, that's disagree, disagreeability. It's, it's, you know, if people said, you can't do it, and the humility that, that on the surface, me, I would I would go, oh, okay. But inside me, I'm going, I'm going to prove you wrong. And I think what it drives is is probably the question as well because I, I think you look at all the people that you speak to successful like there's a level of hard work which is probably necessary to, to be successful you know hard work comes from that like those the 10,000 hour was hard work yeah. but you don't appreciate it because you're a kid and you're running around you're kicking the ball and you're having fun but you're actually doing yeah. a lot of hard work for, for me when I became a professional player and I was told look you are not going to make it because you were too small that was a really sort of challenging period my first two years at Leicester um, they could clearly see I was very talented, but I was very, very small. So I'm six foot, probably six foot one at the time. So a big frame, I was a big baggy frame, but you know, to actually sort of fill that out was 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 a difficult one for them to trust me to sort of physically cope. I think was again was the next challenge. Like I can remember, I wasn't earning a lot of money. I think I'd signed on twelve thousand pounds a year um, at the time, nineteen ninety seven, and another Irish kid had signed with me, and he was on six. So we shared a house and I split the money with him. 
Um, so effectively, so so effectively, 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 we were on nine. We were away from home, best mates. He's still my best mate now. His best man at his wedding, um, and you know we kind of we did everything together. What does he do now? Uh, he he's just playing. He's in banking in Ireland. Yeah, actually, that, yeah. yeah so, that's a classic rugby yeah, track. That isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, banking in Ireland. Yeah, he's he's, he's a good man. Um, but he um, yeah. So so that was it. And I remember um, Dean Richards pulling me aside in the first year and said, "Look, you're not trying hard enough to put weight on." You know, you've come at 84 kilograms and we need you to be heavier and you're not putting weight on. And he was the boss, it's a sort of boss, mm-hmm. sort of six months in, but the guy who signed me got sacked. Um, and, you know, we think you're a good player, but you're not You're not doing enough to put weight on, so we're going to cut your wages in half. So we're going to pay you half until you can put on two kilograms. And you think, so as a kid, as an 18, 19 year old, away from me, living in digs, which wasn't particularly attractive, was renting a house from Richard Cockwell, sleeping in a single bed in a, in a pretty grim little, little student life, effectively. Uh, and you, then you're trying to feed yourself and you're trying to survive on, you know, so I can remember setting alarms to get up in the middle of the night to eat both, like uh, pasta and spaghetti bolognese and just hoofing food and protein shakes. That's a dream. I was um, getting, up, getting up to have an extra dinner in the middle of the night oh and, my God. And, and these protein shakes. And I can remember trying everything and I can remember getting on the scales and going, it's not working, even to the extent that I was thinking maybe I could like put weights in my pockets. Uh, if I could hide some weights in my pocket and get on the scale and be 85 kilograms, I'm gonna like, they're gonna say, oh, you're trying. It wasn't that I wasn't trying, it was just, I, I and in retrospect, I, I was too active. I, you know, I, I played, people say, you know, kids shouldn't play too much sport. When I, when I was a kid, I was, every day I was at rugby practice and then I'd, in the evenings I'd go to Gaelic football and when you think you do maybe 5k in a rugby session Gaelic football is like Australian rules you're doing 10k like the warm up for Gaelic football in the evenings was run the pitch sort of 5-10 times and I'd probably play 3 games in a weekend one on Saturday one on Sunday maybe a Gaelic football game in the week as well And, and so pretty much every day I was going so I had this ability that I could run and run and run if there was a ball in it but I was built like a racing snake so it, it, it wasn't until I figured out actually you need to sort of slow down so Jordan had split his money with his best friend, who then became his best man. Um, so even though he was only being paid 12000 a year to be in Leicester, and his friend was on 6000 they split it and did 9000 each. And then he got his money halved because he wasn't heavy enough until he put on a further two kilos in weight. And so the conversation carried on, and we talked about all the sports that Jordan had been done as a boy and how much variation he'd had and how whether a generalist approach is better than a specialist approach, whether it's in sport or anything else, and the benefits of that approach of doing lots of different things. What Jordan seemed to understand instinctively through trying all those different things was that it taught him how to build relationships and then how to bring that into being part of a culture and then how to build a culture. I think that's where you get your culture right. Like I, I look at all of those successful teams and they all had very, very similar traits. When Leicester fell off a cliff, 2015, 2016 through to 2020, that was completely eroded. You know, we signed superstars, you know, we'd gone from a stage where we had great players in the team from 1997 through to 2013, 2014, we had great players but we had a really great buy-in from the whole squad. Yeah. So our second choice, 10, which is 10 is a pivotal position, but generally your 10 is going to get picked for England, but our second choice, 10, in all those times, generally was an international player of international quality who just was happy to Sit be on part, the bench. Yeah, to be yeah, part yeah, of the team. Yeah. And, and, and there's that's a lot hugely of, cultural, isn't well, it? Well, it's huge. That's that, that culture. When you look at and you see you know, some of the guys, when you think of Jurgen Klopp, employing people just to look at the bench and look at their reaction to goals, just to pick up on 
actually that guy there is not happy he's right. the one guy who's not cheering he's probably not in a good place right. he's the guy who needs things when a squad is happy we had, we had guys a guy called Ben Pienaar he always rings my head he's a, he's a schoolmaster over in a, uh, in Norfolk now in Gresham's Ben Pienaar every day would come out to training and he probably played 15-20 games in 5 or 6 years he played a couple of games a year and every training session he'd turn up and have you ever seen the movie Rudy Yeah, he was like Rudy and we'd get to the, the nutty part of training where somebody would have to suit up suit up would be you know you put on the pads and you were going to get absolutely rat battered by these animals and they'd go PNR suit up and he would suit up and he would fly in and he would hit everything and you're just going you're looking back at it like, why did he do it why would you do, why would you do that if you didn't care but somehow he bought in he cared he felt part of it and when we won the trophies he got his medals and he stood there and and we loved him so I was keen to ask Jordan if there was a formula for that if he understood instinctively or otherwise how to build a culture like that and how to continue to build a culture like that time and time again. And what I've seen as well is, is again, what I tried to do when I took over on the ship it was, was change the culture. And some of that was changing people and some of that was actually kind of sort of doing, again, I'm going to talk in a bit. I, I, I'm I, similar to yourself. I read different things. Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I think that's pretty much base level for, for what works. So I say trust is, is the base level, which is really important and how you build trust. You need that psychological safety in, in the group yeah. or challenging conversations or conflict in order to have commitment, accountability, and then you're at the, you're at the top of the peak. And, and it's, it's a very simple model. Um, but I saw that you know, in all of the teams that I was part of. And, and I, I think success is achievable and attainable on a very short-term scale just by telling and being a director and getting that nutty environment you can build that nasty tough environment just by that but it's not sustainable yeah that's the problem sustainability but then again i've had this argument with people before because in sport now it's not probably not sustainable people sports teams want results here all the time they want Uh, results now so if you've if you've got a coach a saying well look i'm going to build a sustainable culture here that's going to last you for 10 years which i was part of and i as a player and my ambition as a coach was to build that going forward because I'd sort of been around the club for 23 years or another coach coach B who's going I don't care about what's going to happen in two three years time I want to win this season and next season and I'm going to come in and I will be ruthless and I will do it in order to get success as an owner you're probably going to say I just want success now so at the end of all of that I decided to show Jordan a try which is my favorite rugby try of all time in 1990 Scotland played England at Murrayfield in Edinburgh for a Grand Slam decider where both were unbeaten for the last game of the season. The Scots marched out while England ran out. It was hugely symbolic. And during that game, there was a chip to the corner a la Jordan Murphy. And Tony Stanger scored a try, which I'll never forget. I remember jumping about my living room. But I wanted to show that to Jordan because I wanted to explain a point about people like him and what he's like. I had that try stored on my iPad ready to show, but I didn't know who he was or how nice or not he would be. But then I wanted to show him it and I wanted to share it with him. And the audio drops out a bit here, but it's worth it because I couldn't repeat this now. I was looking at him straight in the face while I was talking to him. No, I'm going to, I know I'm going to bring it to you, but I'm, I'm, going, to sh- I'm going to show you something yet because um, I'm going to show you the greatest try that's ever been um, and, um, and, and, and try and get you buy-in to agree with. Um, the Barbarians versus New Zealand. No, no. And um, yeah, um, Jordan Murphy versus Scotland. <laughs> so, uh, but it, there's a point to be showing you this, but I'll show you. I'll show you what it is for me. Okay. 
Um. Oh, wow. Even Tukalo in the right corner. It's it's always it's 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 always going to be a Scotland try, isn't it? Hey, stinks. Tony Stanger. So that we're we're going to the, the put into here what that what that try is. It's Tony Stanger scored in the nineteen ninety um, Grand Slam match, um, and so I mean it's it's Murrayfield with no roof on it. Look at that. But it's um, beautiful. It's, it's, it's a, what it is, is a, this is a thank you to you for coming, right? Because the reason for that is, so what that, what that does for me is I, I was 18 at the time, right? And I watched that game. That was the game where Scotland walked out. Do you remember? So England, it was both, it was a Grand Slam decider. We both won every game. England ran out and David Soul had decided that they were marching onto the pitch. And it was so kind of symbolic that, they didn't run out. England ran on, and they just and the crowd went absolutely ballistic. And but what what you did through such a decorated career was you created moments like that time and time again. And I think that people like you don't necessarily understand the impact that you have. So I've never met Tony Stanger. Um, I've never met Gavin Hastings. I've heard some extraordinary tales of Gavin Hastings. I met Chris Hoy, and he told me some astonishing tales of Gavin Hastings, who was his hero. He's absolutely starstruck. Chris Hoy, by like Gavin Hastings, yeah. Gavin Hastings' son. Chris Hoy was doing some cycle stuff, coaching, and, and he saw Gavin Hastings at the, on the side of the coaching. Oh my God, you know, Gavin Hastings is here. And the next thing, Gavin Hastings' son came up and asked Chris Hoy for an autograph. And Chris Hoy says he just he just felt a bit, so he was just going, this is too much, right? But um, what that, you know, there's memories in that, but that, that still gives me goosebumps. And you created moments like that. And guys like you who achieved the success that you achieved, that it's priceless, that. It's, it's beyond... Financial reward, and it's and it's and it's such a there's a wonderful uh, phrase from Mother Teresa that somebody gave me for Christmas as a bookmark, which is I can't change the world, but I can cast a stone that creates ripple, and that's what you guys have done. And and sport does do that, and international sport brings people together. And so I suppose with that, I should probably say thanks a million. That's been amazing, right? It's been such a rush to speak <laughs> yeah, to, yeah, and we've had a great time. Thank you so much. No, thank you. One of the wonderful things about doing this podcast stuff is the surprises that it brings and the unexpected joys of meeting people that are just brilliant. It doesn't always go like that. And I've got some recordings that we'll probably never use because they just didn't go how we thought or people were too guarded or they never opened up. But Jordan, God, he, he was just something special. The most decorated Premiership rugby player of all time. Eight Premiership titles, four National Cups, two European Cups, out of four European finals. Um, but to come in the way he did and to be so humble and so decent, it was amazing. One of the stories off the mic was about his last Premiership final where he was training all week and intended to retire at the end. He had been out of the team for the whole season and only got back in because his opposite number in the team had a terrible injury. But the week before the final the coaches decided that he couldn't play because someone else had gotten injured and they needed to put someone else in the squad who could cover more positions. But they asked Jordan to make the choice. So his very last game as a professional rugby player was to be in the Premiership final and he was to decide whether he would play or not. And he didn't. He decided to be the water boy because it was better for the team. I heard that story also with 
Ed Clancy, who pulled himself out of the team for suit in Tokyo because he wasn't fit enough before the gold medal ride. There's something special about these guys, about guys who work and live in teams at such elite levels that they understand the importance of being honest and having integrity. And so, to have the opportunity to speak and to get to know someone like that, it's a real privilege. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did.